We are continuing our study in the book of Esther, chapter 4. Let's pray and we'll dive into this. Lord, we love you and we know, God, it's because you first loved us. And Father, I thank you for my church family here, that we can gather together like this on a Sunday, open up the pages of your word and know that you are going to speak to us. So we invite you right now by your Holy Spirit, through your word, to have your way in this place and in our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin this morning with with this big idea that faith is an internal conviction that results in external action. Faith is an internal conviction that leads to external action. In other words, faith is not just what you believe, but it's how you behave. Let me give you a, a couple of examples. We've all seen this one. Many of us have experienced this. A little kid standing on the side of a pool looking very, very nervous. In the pool is his dad with his arms outstretched, and he's saying to him, don't be afraid. Trust me. Just jump. Now, how do you know whether that child has faith in their father? Well, it's not in that they, that child could give you a definition of what faith is. No, the faith is going to be seen in the reality that they jump. And after that first jump, what happens? Their faith grows, right? Dad is backing up farther and farther, and pretty soon that little kid is running and jumping. The nervousness has been replaced by a smile and laughter and pure joy. How about this one? You see a young man and a young woman on their wedding day. Friends and family are gathered together, and they're watching this bride-to-be walking down the aisle toward her husband-to-be. The groom waiting there is an act of faith. The bride walking toward him is also an act of faith. The two of them standing there together, holding hands, taking vows, is also an act of faith. As they are declaring to one another, I trust you, and everyone here gets to see that. So faith is demonstrated in what you do. Well, we saw in our last study a Jewish man by the name of Mordecai who was moved by his internal conviction that led to external action when he refused to bow down and pay homage to a Persian leader by the name of Haman. Mordecai is a Jewish man. He's a follower of God living in a pagan society, living there in Persia. And when this decree went forth that everyone needed to bow down and pay homage to this recently promoted Persian official, Haman, Mordecai makes a stand for his convictions and refuses to bow. And we learned last week that the reason for that was because of his Jewish faith. And so last week we noted three principles of the kind of person that God uses. And the first principle was this, that they are people of conviction, that they are people who stand on their convictions. They stand for the truth. Their faith is active. 
And then we noted the second principle of the kind of person that God uses is that they bloom where they're planted. And we saw this again in Mordecai, that he's been faithfully serving this pagan king. That's his job. For five years, he's been working under this official. In fact, he even interrupted an assassination plot to take out this king. And he's living there in Persia. This is where God has him. And he's simply trying to be faithful in this place. And prior to this, we saw how he stepped up and adopted the orphaned cousin, this young girl by the name of Hadassah. We know her as Esther. He adopts her and raises her as his own daughter because he is a stand-up guy doing what he can where God has placed him. Well, we noted a wicked twist in the story last week because this man, Haman, this recently promoted Persian official, he gets so mad that Mordecai won't bow down to him. And he learns that Mordecai is a Jew, and that's the reason why. And so he invokes a plan to have all the Jews, all three million of the Jews in all the provinces of Persia, all 127 provinces, annihilated. He gets the king to sign off on this plan. And after the casting of lots, it was determined that this eradication of all the Jews in Persia would happen in 11 months. And that led to the third thing we noted about the kind of person that God uses, and it's that they mourn over sin and injustice. And we saw this where Mordecai, after he hears of this decree, he rips his clothes He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He goes before the very gate of the palace and he is mourning and weeping bitterly, loudly, publicly. There's store owners that are watching him, officials that are staring. People don't, you know, understand what is going on, but he doesn't care. This is a wrong that he is going to let be known. And Jewish people all over the province of Persia followed suit. They followed in his example. And that's where we left the story last time, if you were with us. And I noted that it was kind of a weird place to end. This man mourning, all these people mourning over this injustice going on in their society. And I share with you that I even kind of struggled with the idea of stopping here because it was kind of a, on, a, on a down note, but God just implored in my, my heart that this was where we were to stop because he wanted us to realize that we need to be people and we need to be a church. And if we're really going to see change happen in our culture, that this is where it's going to start with us mourning over the sin, the injustice going on in our culture, especially the sin and the injustice against the unborn. That if we're really going to see change happen and really see you know, revival happen, it, it begins with God's people, our hearts breaking for the things that break his heart. Well, today we're picking it up here in chapter 4, in verse 4, and we're going to see four more principles, if you're taking notes, of the kind of person that God uses. So let's read beginning here in verse 4. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, they came and told her about Mordecai, what was happening. 
And the queen was deeply distressed. And then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and to take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Now, it seems here that Esther is, has been a bit sheltered and isolated in the palace. Remember, she's the queen. And she seems to be kind of clueless to this new law that has gone on throughout the kingdom because she has no idea why Mordecai is so upset. She has no idea that in 11 months, all the Jewish people throughout Persia are going to be annihilated. And I want to just pause here and say this. We have to be so careful as the people of God that we don't become so isolated in our little Christian bubbles that we don't know what is going on in the culture around us. I'll never forget, it was on 9-11, as the planes were hitting the towers. That morning, we had a prayer meeting here at the church. And I was running a little bit late. And so as I was driving over, I wasn't listening to the radio. I hadn't checked my phone. And I had no idea what was going on. And I come into this prayer meeting. It had already started, probably a couple, just a couple minutes. But I noted how everybody in the circle just seemed really somber. And no one was praying. So I decided to break the ice, and I started praying just for the church and praying for our community, just kind of normal prayers. And it was then that one of our elders that was sitting next to me kind of leaned over and touched me and whispered in, in my ear, America has just been attacked. And man, did I feel clueless. I understood why everybody was somber. They were like in shock about what in the world is going on. And we have to be careful that we don't just get wrapped up in our own little lives, in our own little bubbles, that we don't understand what's going on in the world around us. And that's where Esther finds herself. She's in the palace, and she seems to be clueless about this edict that has gone forth to kill all the Jewish people in the kingdom. And so she sends these clothes down to Mordecai, like, hey, you're making a spectacle of yourself. Here, put these clothes on, and he refuses. And that's when she knows that something serious is going on. So we read, Then Esther called Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend to her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. She says, hey, I need you to go down and investigate what is going on with my, remember, he was her father figure. What was, what's going on with Mordecai? What's going on with my father? So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury to destroy the Jews. And he also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given in Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her that he might command her to go into the king and make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hatak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Mordecai like pulls out this poster and says, hey, go show this to Esther. She needs to understand what is going on here. And we see that Mordecai is charging Esther, you've got to go in before the king and intercede for the nation, for your people. 
And this is the fourth thing, if you're taking notes, that we see of the kind of person that God uses is that they inspire others to take steps of faith. You know, we haven't heard that much about Esther and her faith up to this point, but now her heart is being stirred. And But as, as her heart is being stirred, as she's being charged by Mordecai, I want you to notice that she starts off by thinking just kind of rationally, practically about this situation. And sometimes that's what we can do. We'll pick it up in verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out his golden scepter that he may live. And then she said this, yet I myself have not been called into the king's presence for 30 days. Now here's something you need to understand about that culture. The king and the queen lived in separate quarters. They slept in separate beds. It wasn't like, you know, they got together every night and had dinner together. No, the queen never even saw him unless he summoned her. That's the kind of relationship that they had. And the law in Persia said that no one could come into the king's presence unless the king summoned them. And if someone just barged in or even came in humbly without being summoned, they would be put to death. In fact, there's an archaeological dig that, was, that had taken place where they found a picture of a Persian king. And behind him was a soldier holding this giant axe. And that was the, the picture that really, you know, portrayed this message, what was going on, that, hey, if you came into the king's presence unsummoned, you were risking your life. So this is how it worked. If you wanted to see the king and you were given, you were granted access into the palace, you would go and stand in this long corridor where the king could see you. And if the king decided that he wanted to see you, he would put down his golden scepter, and that means he was granting you access into his presence. But if he kept that scepter raised, then that meant that he didn't want to see you, but it not only meant that he didn't want to see you, it meant that you were going to lose your head. So anyone, including the queen, who sought an audience to the king without being summoned, you were taking a huge risk. And this is what Esther is making a point of here. She's saying, look, I can't just barge in there. I understand what you're saying and what you think I need to do, but I can't just go into his presence without being summoned, and he hasn't called for me in 30 days. But notice Mordecai's response, verse 12. So they told Mordecai Esther's words, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. Mordecai wanted Esther to realize that the palace offered her no protection. There was no free pass for the queen. There was no special privilege that she was going to get to escape this edict. Because here's another thing that you need to understand about Persian law. When a king signs something into law, he himself couldn't even change it. 
That was the way their judicial system worked. That's the reason why when the king signed into law that Queen Vashti would be banished, and then later on we saw that he was missing her, that he couldn't just say, hey, I want to have my queen back, because he had signed it into law that she was going to be banished. We see a similar thing happen in the book of Daniel. When Daniel is serving a Persian king by the name of Darius, and Darius really, really likes Daniel. But Darius has these advisors who can't stand Daniel. They're jealous of Daniel and the way the king feels about Daniel. And they know that Daniel is a man of prayer, that he prays to Jehovah God. So they trick the king into signing an edict that basically said for a certain period of time, no one could pray to anyone else, any other God or any other person except the king himself. And if they broke that, they would be thrown into the lion's den. Well, the king finds out because Daniel continues to be this man of prayer, how he had been tricked. But there's nothing he could do to change it. All he could do was to hope that Daniel didn't get eaten by the lions. And if you don't know that story, it's a great uh, story in the book of uh, Daniel that I would encourage you to read. But that's the way their law system worked. And so this is what Mordecai is saying to Esther. is like, look, just because you're the queen, you're still under this. You're a Jew. And so this edict is going to apply to you. But then Mordecai says something that's really intriguing. Look at verse 14. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And there's two things I want you to note here. First of all, Mordecai says, look, Esther, if you don't do this, deliverance is going to come from another. Mordecai has faith in God that God is not going to let this happen. But it seems logical to him that Esther has been put in this place, in the palace, this place of influence for a reason. And the reason is that she's the instrument that the Lord wants to use. But he says, look, if you refuse the call, God is going to raise up deliverance from somewhere else. Deliverance is going to come. But Esther, you're going to lose the opportunity to be the instrument that God works through. And you know what? I I think that God often does the same thing in our lives as well. That he brings you into a situation where you see a problem. Or you see a need in your community or a need in the church. And oftentimes, listen to me, God is showing you the need because he wants you to be a part of the solution. He's showing you the problem, not so that you can complain and grumble or point fingers, but God is showing it to you because he wants you to be a part of the solution. He wants you to pray and to seek him about how you can be a part of that solution. But if you fail to respond, he will find someone else and you'll miss out on the opportunity and the reward. Now, I want you to think for a moment. How many of us, if we're in Esther's shoes, knowing what's at stake, and we hear this word from Mordecai, how many of us don't say, fine, let him find somebody else? 
Let him raise somebody. I, I don't need that reward. You know, how many of us respond in that way? It was G.K. Chesterton or G.K. Chesterton that said this the Christian life has not been tried and found wanting, it's been found difficult and left untried. And what G.K. Chesterton said about the Christian life is equally true oftentimes about Christian ministry and service. Too many Christians so often have a tendency to say, you know, that just seems too hard. That just seems too difficult. That just seems like it's going to cost too much sacrifice. I'll pass. Let somebody else do that. But when you respond in that way, you miss out on the opportunity of God being able to use your life. And you miss out on the opportunity of God being able to stretch you in that situation that ultimately is going to result in him blessing your life. Because friends, the most rewarding thing that any of us can ever experience, the most exciting thing that any of us can ever experience is being a vessel, being an instrument that is being used by the living God. And you know, I believe that that really is God's heart for every single one of us in this room, every single one of you who are watching online, that his heart is that we would understand that he wants us to be a vessel, an instrument. That's why Paul wrote these words in the book of Ephesians when he said, for we are his workmanship. Everybody say workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then he said this, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. The word workmanship in the Greek, it's the Greek word poema. And it was a word that, that spoke in that culture of a masterpiece, of some type of work of art or piece of music that people looked at and said, it's a masterpiece. It's top line. And that's what God says about you, is that you are my masterpiece in the making. But notice how, how he puts it. Created in Christ. You see, he's not talking there about our human anatomy. Even though the Bible says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. No, in this context, he's talking about how we've been chosen by Christ. We've been chosen to be his workmanship, his instruments. That God has something for each one of us in really every season of our lives that he has prepared for us. And he wants us to take a step of faith to walk in that. To see how he might want to work in our lives. How he might want to use us. And part of the Christian life is discovering what it means to be the workmanship of God in every season of your life. Realizing that God has given all of us the privilege to be on mission with him. That God has given to each of us a sphere of influence. People that he has placed in our path and in our lives. And he has given us resources. And he has given us responsibilities. And he has given us gifts and talents. This is what God has placed into our hands that he wants us to use. For his glory. And that's when the Christian life really gets exciting. is when we realize this is why I am 
here. So the question always that we need to be asking ourselves is, what am I doing with what God has given to us? What am I doing with God, with what God has given to me in this season of my life? And it's clear that Mordecai, he believes that this is the reason why Esther has been chosen to be the queen for this purpose, for this time. And if she doesn't answer the call, God is going to raise up a deliverer for someone else. So the first thing that God wants her to see is if you don't respond, Esther, God's got a plan. And he's going to find plan B. But there's another thing that I want you to note here. Look at verse 14 again. He says, yet who knows, this is the question he asks, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He's wanting her to understand, Esther, you have been placed in this position specifically for this moment, for such a time as this. And Mordecai is expressing confidence that Esther's position was in fact designed and purposed by God for this specific time. And this is the fifth trait that we see in the man or woman that God uses is that they help others see the big picture and the urgency of the hour. Mordecai... His great appeal to Esther was based on this big principle, that the greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. That the more God has given you, the greater your responsibility to use that for his kingdom. And let's just imagine for a moment, what would happen? Imagine what God might do with all of us if we embraced that big picture principle. If we embrace this reality that we are the workmanship of God and that God has placed you here at Calvary Vista and God has you living here in North County, San Diego for such a time as this. That he has a purpose for your life that goes beyond you just living and existing and earning an income. It goes even beyond raising up your kids to be followers of Jesus Christ, which is a huge part of the mission. But he wants both you and your kids to realize that you exist for a bigger purpose than just your own personal happiness and your own personal pleasure that you have a role to play in the mission and the plan of God. Imagine what would happen if all of us started praying and asking God, Lord, why am I here? Lord, why do you have me in this sphere of influence? Why have you given me this job? Why have you put me in this neighborhood? Why have you surrounded me with this group of friends? Lord, why am I here? What is your purpose for my life for such a time as this? Imagine what God might do if we all started praying in that way and then he started answering our prayer and giving us insight and then we started taking a step of faith and saying, okay, I'm gonna move in that direction. I'll tell you what would happen. God would blow our minds. It would be incredible. It would be amazing. 
to see the way that he might work through our lives. But listen, that only happens. And we only pray in that way when we see the urgency of the hour. That only happens when we begin to realize that we are living in turbulent times. That we are living in what the Bible calls the latter days. It's only when we get a sense of that urgency that we will pray consistently in that way. Mordecai is inspiring Esther to see her opportunity, and he's charging her to see the urgency of the hour. Esther's been queen now for five years, and she has no idea why she's been put into that role, but now it's becoming clear. And you know, some of you, you've desired to be used by the Lord. But God hasn't, like Grayson was saying, he hasn't really revealed to you what the plan is. He's maybe put something on your heart that that hasn't yet come to fruition. And if you're in that place, I want to charge you in two ways today. Number one, I want to charge you, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary in waiting for God's plan to unfold. You just be faithful where he has you. You just put your hand to being faithful to what he's put before you. And here's the second charge. Don't get too comfortable. Don't don't grow weary, but also don't get too comfortable so that when God comes and says, okay, now is the time that you're too comfortable to respond. So Mordecai is telling Esther, the time is now. Let's pick it up in verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go and gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me and neither eat nor drink for three days and a night or a day that my maids and and I will fast likewise and and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And so Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded. And here's the sixth thing that we see about the kind of person that God uses is they know the importance of prayer and fasting. Esther is wise enough to know that this wasn't a political issue. This was a spiritual issue. That this is about the forces of light and darkness being in conflict with one another. And so she says, go tell Mordecai to gather all the Jews and have them fast and pray for three days that they might cry out to God for his grace and mercy. She understands, you see, the importance of prayer and fasting. And that's something that is true, I think, of any person that God is going to use, that they understand the power and the importance of prayer and fasting. In fact, remember in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus is coming down the Mount of Transfiguration after he'd had that incredible time with Moses and Elijah and Peter and John, James and John were there. And he comes down and he finds his disciples talking with a man, a father who had a demon-possessed son. And the father says to Jesus, I came and implored your disciples to cast him out, but they were not able to do so. Well, Jesus ends up casting the demon out. And then later his disciples said, how come we weren't able to cast him out? And that's when Jesus said something really interesting. He said, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. 
And that was an interesting statement because what Jesus was saying was this, there are certain strongholds of the enemy that are so strong that the only way that they are removed is by prayer and fasting. Now, someone could argue and say, but the disciples didn't know that they were going to you know, encounter this radically demon-possessed boy. And that's true. And that's why prayer and fasting needs to be a regular discipline in our lives. Because we don't know. And when we do encounter something that's really heavy and really radical, we need to understand that before there might be a breakthrough, we need, we need to pray and we need to fast and we need to humble ourselves in that way before the Lord. We see this in the early church in the book of Acts, that prayer and fasting was a regular part of their routine and their discipline as a group of people. Prayer is that sense of acknowledging to God that we are utterly dependent upon him, that we realize that we can't do anything without him. And fasting is that discipline of the denying of our flesh. And what it does is it heightens our spiritual sensitivity to where we're able to hear and respond more clearly to the voice of God. And so prayer and fasting are two disciplines that are imperative in the lives of the person that God is going to work through. But here's the seventh thing and final thing that we learn from this story that's a part of a person's life that God uses is that they're not afraid to take a risk for the glory of God. Esther says, I'll go in before the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I'll perish. She says, I'm going to take a risk, and if it fails and I perish, so be it. At this moment, Esther has changed from fear to abandonment and faith. She's changed from hesitation to confidence and determination. She's changed from concern for her own safety for now the concern and the survival of her people. She has reached her own personal hour of decision and has not been found wanting. It was Pastor Ray Pritchard who said this, there is no one so free as the person who is not afraid to die. If you aren't afraid to die, then you are free to serve the Lord and do whatever he calls you to do. That's the same sentiment that Paul expressed when he was talking to the elders of the Ephesian church. Knowing that he was on his way to Jerusalem where he was quite possibly going to be arrested and maybe even die, he said these words, but none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, Paul understood if he was going to finish his race and fulfill his purpose as the workmanship of God, he said, I can't live in the fear of the what if. I got to be faithful to where God has called me and be faithful with what God has put before me. Now, I will be honest and say that is a very hard mentality to have. It's not the easiest at all, especially when you know that you possibly dying means that you're leaving loved ones behind. 
But I'll tell you this. It is the key to fulfilling your mission. It's God's workmanship. There have been several times in my life when I've been asked to go on a missions trip overseas to a war-torn country or to go to a place where it was very, very violent and there was the potential that something could happen to me, that I could maybe lose my life. And so when I was asked to go on some of these trips, I prayed really, really hard. (laughs) Lord, do you really want me to go? And once I got that confirmation, this was the attitude that I had to adopt. Okay, I'm not going to count my life dear to myself. And I took out a life insurance policy. (laughs) Just in case. (laughs) But oftentimes there was a sense of like, I don't think God's finished with me yet. So, okay, I'm going to go. Listen, God is going to use Esther in a way. And we'll see this, not next week, because I'll be gone, but the week after. He's going to use her in a way that is going to change human history. But in order to be that instrument, she had to be willing to take a risk. And I want to remind you of how we started today with this big idea that faith is an internal conviction that leads to an external action. And if God is going to use your life in some way, listen, it is going to mean that you're going to have to be willing to take a risk. That's why we call it faith. But, but here's the good thing for all of us. There's probably very few, I know there's a few guys in, in our fellowship that are involved in law enforcement, and so for, for, for the rest of us, that risk isn't going to involve the potential that we're going to lose our lives. That's not the risk. At least at this point in time, living here in America, that we are faced with. The risk isn't life-threatening, but... It might be a risk to your reputation. There's always the risk of failure. Often a financial risk is involved in taking steps of faith. There's always the risk of being misunderstood by others who are questioning like, what in the world are you doing? But note this, with the risk comes the reward. With the risk comes the blessing of being used by God. And so this is the question that I want to leave you with today. Are we willing to take that step of faith knowing that there's a risk involved? Here's why Paul was willing to take that risk in his life. Because he understood the risk, the sacrifice that Jesus made for him. That Jesus left heaven laid aside that place of being at the right hand of the Father, came down to this earth, became a man like one of us for the purpose that he would go to a cross where he would die in our place. And Paul said, it's the love of Jesus Christ that compels me. 
that moves me. That, that's why I do this. That's why I take this. That's why I don't count my life dear to myself because my life is about him and fulfilling the purpose and the reason and the calling for why I am here. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you loved us enough to send your son Jesus to leave heaven and come to this earth to risk it all that, so that we could be saved. And Lord, we count it just an incredible, it's mind-blowing to think that you have chosen in your mission to use messy, broken people like us who don't have it all together, that have all our different problems and hang-ups. But you've chosen to give us the privilege, the opportunity to be vessels that you work through for your glory, for your name. Lord, I pray that we would be willing to take the risk. With our head bowed and our eyes closed right now, I want to encourage you to just have a moment right now with the Lord. Because for some of you, maybe God has been stirring your heart about something. A step of faith that He wants you to take that you've been unwilling to do that because of the risks involved. And today, He's speaking to you. And he wants you to surrender that to him. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. And I want us to encourage you in your heart to, to just give yourself to, to the Lord. If you want prayer, there's going to be folks up front here that are available to pray for you. If you want to just come in an act of surrender and, and, and bow down before the Lord on this padded carpet up here to just say, God, I'm surrendering my heart and surrendering that thing to you. I encourage you to do that. But maybe you're, you're thinking, you know, this didn't really apply to me much at all. You know, I, I didn't, I don't, I'm not sensing anything. But, but I want to ask you this. Would right now today, would you begin to pray, God, show me my purpose. Show me why I'm here for such a time as this. Lord, show me. Open my eyes to see the sphere of influence that you've given me. Open my eyes to see the resources, the gifts, the talents that you've given me and how you might want to use that. Would you just, in this moment that we're going to have right now before we go our way, to just open your heart to Jesus and say, God, I want to I just lay it down.